Well, I want to say hi to all the campuses that are uh, joining us across the East Bay, those of you that are joining us online, and Cornerstone Inside, the Incarcerated Church. Uh, Everybody, uh, get ready for uh, a great uh, topic and a a pastor that's hoping to preach a decent sermon. Uh, The response from the You Asked For a Series has really been phenomenal. Um, Normally, as you can imagine, the spring attendance starts to decline a little bit as the weather uh, improves, but we've been experiencing the opposite. Uh, as, uh, as we open this series, we begin to experience record-breaking post-Easter attendance, and I believe it's because we're dis- uh, addressing these difficult topics. Today, we're talking about hell. Yay, hell. I'd rather talk about heaven, but you didn't want us to talk about heaven. You wanted us to talk about hell, specifically Uh, If our God is a God of love, and if he's a God of mercy and grace, how in the world could he send people to hell? So let's pray together, and let's ask the Lord to guide us through this discussion. Father God, we come to you now in the powerful name of Jesus, and across the campuses we have sung about the name of Jesus, how powerful you are. And Lord, the Apostle Paul made it very clear when he told us that we're really not wrestling with flesh and blood issues. We're wrestling with spiritual issues here. And Jesus, we know that you lead the way as our pioneer and as our leader in these spiritual issues. And we know that we have the propensity in religion to get it wrong. So help us as we search the scripture during this next 30 or 40 minutes to ask the right questions, and even to leave this place with some more questions where we will delve into the scripture together and, and find our answers where we should find them in the Bible. And Lord, teach us on this important but scary topic in Christ's name. And everybody agreed by saying, amen. All right. All right, let's talk about divine judgment. Uh, divine judgment is arguably Christians most, Christianity's most offensive doctrine. Uh, it's, it, it's probably the one issue that keeps uh, many people from embracing the Christian faith, actually from embracing any faith, because every faith has its own version of rewards and, uh, and punishment in the end. Now, most, most, people in the, uh, most people in the world believe there is a God. Uh, and as long as he presents himself as gracious and merciful, uh, we have no trouble with that. But a God of judgment, a God that would punish people, that's a different issue. Now, I think we all agree that some people, like really bad people, would deserve judgment and would deserve punishment. Um, the, the news this week exposed us all to the golden uh, Golden State Killer, this, 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 this guy who three decades ago uh, killed and, 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 and raped and just wrecked people's lives o- over a long period of time. And he, he got away with it. He got away until uh, a suspect has just been taken into custody that is most likely um, this guy. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have a problem with God punishing this guy severely. And if God wants to send him to hell, 
I, I don't think I would struggle with that. Uh, I'd, be fun with, I'd be fine with God judging other people like him. Uh, I think of uh, the Syrian president, uh, Bashar Assad, and his generals who, who rained down uh, poisonous gas on innocent men and women and children in their, in their country. Uh, this last week, a, a van driver in Toronto specifically rented a van so that he could drive up into the sidewalk and try to kill women. And he was successful. He killed eight women uh, and 10 men. Uh, so when it comes to a person like that who would purposely plan and carry out an attack like this, I don't uh, struggle with the thought that they would face God's wrath. I mean, some people have asked, uh, how could God send people to hell? And I, in, in these cases, I would say, how could he not? Uh, if God is a God of love, then his love for the victims would cry out for justice. Hell exists because God's love cries out for justice. I was reading this week uh, what I can understand from this really intelligent professor at Yale, uh, Miroslav Wolf. And, 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 and Dr. Wolf is a Croatian theologian who himself witnessed the atrocities of the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia. Uh, and people were attacked by their own neighbors. Uh, and then soldiers who raped the women and killed the men and, and burned down uh, the neighborhoods and drove the people uh, from their childhood uh, homes. And Dr. Wolf con concluded in one of his books, if hell was not awaiting these attackers, if God were not angry at this injustice and did not make a final end to violence someday, that God would not be worthy of worship. God's love demands justice. Uh, love and justice, they go hand in hand. Uh, God loves us, and he promises to make things right in the end. That's why we don't have to take vengeance. That's why we don't have to perpetuate cycles of violence, because we can say, you know what? God is going to judge, and that's a comforting thought. Like the Apostle Paul comforted the, the Christians in Thessalonica when he wrote, God is just, and uh, he, he is going to pay back trouble to those who trouble you. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. By the way, that's a really good definition of hell. The thought of God someday bringing down fair judgment is, is comforting to every victim of violence. For, and for today's discussion, I, I think it's fair to say that most of us have no problem with truly evil people being sent to hell. A God of justice comforts us. Now, what's fascinating to me is how this same discussion about judgment plays in other cultures where Western logic is reversed. Now, in our part of the world, the vast majority of us start with the thought of God being loving and gracious and forgiving. But when you go to a Muslim country, when you go to a country where uh, Hinduism uh, is, is the main religion or, or, or tribal religions dominate, uh, most of these religions, for them, the thought of a god or gods eventually raining down uh, judgment on unbelievers, infidels, sinful people, that's accepted. That's considered um, normal. In other cultures, God bringing down harsh judgment Seems fine. In those cultures, it's our God, our all-loving, 
merciful, forgiving God that seems hard for them to fathom. He, he just seems way too soft to be God. I say that because I believe that if we're going to take an honest look at this question, we've got to recognize that where we were born plays into why we have trouble with it. Um, uh, being Americans affects us because Americans easily believe in a God of forgiveness but struggle with harsh and eternal punishment. Now, why is that? Could it be because we were raised in Western culture and Western culture uh, has been for centuries steeped in Judeo-Christian values? Um, So I would say I believe that a big reason why you naturally uh, want to think that God is gracious and naturally don't want to think that God is judgmental is because America was founded by people who believe in a gracious God. To add to that, the tendency of American preachers to avoid the topic of hell, and you have a whole generation of us that are questioning whether it even exists or not, because we don't know our Bibles. Uh, now, not that justice itself is not logical to us. Uh, the court system, the prison systems, we do want criminals to pay for their crimes, and that's what hell is, criminals paying for their crimes. So hell should make sense to us if really bad people go there. Uh, And I think if we think long enough about it, that part does make sense to us. What doesn't make sense to us and what we struggle with is all those other people that the Bible seems to say will be going to hell. Let's talk about some of those different groups. Uh, what about people who, who knew about Christ, but they never got around to accepting him? Maybe they had a problem with the church. Maybe they had a legitimate problem with the church. And they said, I would never be a Christian because of a priest who did something or because of, uh, 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 I think the church has done this over the centuries. And so they just die having not committed Christ, even though they may have relatives who are followers after Christ. Well, you'd have to be a pastor to understand how often this question gets, gets asked, actually, because pastors don't perform very many funerals before being asked this, a type of this question. Uh, now, now, the celebrations of life where the deceased was, was very much a Christ follower, these truly are celebrations. I mean, sure, we grieve, but oftentimes the person who passed Went on to, we know they went on to be with the Lord, and also they were really suffering for a season, maybe a long season. And so the celebration of life, it's like a release for all of us to, to release them to God and to celebrate their life, knowing that they truly are in the presence of the Lord. But then there are those other funerals that we've all been to, where as far as we know anyway, the person never put faith in Christ. They never expressed a willingness to confess sin, to receive grace. Uh, So we read our Bibles, and then someone asks the pastor, what about them? What about, is my brother going to hell? Well, the the, the honest answer is we don't know. We don't know. That's right. And that's not a cop-out. We really don't know. We won't know till we get there. You say, wait a minute, pastor. Doesn't the Bible say that every person will stand before God someday? Yes, it does. And doesn't it say that a book will be open, and if your name's not in the book, then you're not getting into heaven? Yes, it does say that. 
Doesn't it also say that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus? Yes, it does say that too. But there's something very important about your relative who passed that we cannot know until we get to heaven. What we don't know is what took place as that person transitioned from life to death. Is it possible that Christ met them there and it all made sense to them in that moment that they were dying? Well, it would be just like Jesus to do that. Uh, This is the same Jesus who looked over at a criminal as they were both dying and for no reason. And the criminal didn't even ask for grace. He just was defending Jesus because the other criminal was ripping on Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? Today, you and I are going to be together in paradise. That's, That's how Jesus operates. As this guy's dying, Jesus takes him to paradise. It's the same Jesus who, after he died, descended to hell And what does Peter tell us Jesus was doing in hell? Well, he was preaching to those who died in Noah's flood. And why was he doing that? Because God's justice is attached to God's love and his heart for for mercy. Yes, our God created hell, but then he went there. Uh, Our God is a God who judges, but his tendency is always mercy. So I would say, don't write anyone off who died without you knowing whether they were following Christ or not. You aren't their judge, and Jesus was very clear about that. And the one who is their judge is far more merciful than you and I would ever be. I'm confident of this. There will be a lot of surprises in heaven. (laughs) There are going to be people in heaven that will be surprised that you're there. (laughs) (laughs) Can I get an amen? Okay. And there will be people there that you would have never expected to have made the cut. And you know what else is sad? There There will be people that you will look for who will not be there. Jesus warned us about this. The most religious guys in Jesus' day and in Jesus' neighborhood were the guys that he confronted and warned them with warnings like this. One time he's having a conversation with them and he just says, you guys are a bunch of snakes. He's talking to the guys in the robes. You guys are a bunch of snakes. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Nobody talk to these guys. Who is this Jesus to talk to us like that? And yet he knew. All right, so there, you know, there's that group. But a, but a huge question remains, what about all those people who never heard about Christ? What about all those people who never had the opportunity to receive Christ? There have got to be hundreds of millions of people who die having never read one word of the Bible, having never had anybody explain to them Christ's plan. Does that person go to hell? Well... Now we're, now we're at the place of struggle. Most of us struggle with that. I struggle with that. It seems so unfair that I would go to heaven mainly because of where I was born. Well, it's the Apostle Paul who best answers this question, so we're gonna go to Romans 1 and 2 now. Go with me to Romans 
chapter 1. And let's, let's, let's take a quick look at how Paul unpacks it. And then my hope is, because I'm going to be skipping some verses, that you'll go back and really do a study on this. The Apostle Paul, in regards to heaven and hell, out of Romans 1 and 2. Let's start in verse 18 of chapter 1. Now, Paul has just talked about the power of God to save, and then he turns around in verse 18 and says, the wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and all the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Did you see that? Paul doesn't let anyone off the hook. Not people who, he doesn't even mention Jesus. He talks about creation. Paul says, uh, you know, we would say it's not fair for God to judge people who never heard about Jesus. And Paul says they wouldn't have had to have heard about Jesus for God to fairly judge them. They would have just had to be born and to witness God's creation. Those people, Paul says, are without excuse because especially any of them who decided to worship any created thing instead of seek out the creator himself. If all you had to go by, Paul says, was just creation, you would have figured out enough to pursue that creator as your God. Read on. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And he describes some of this. And then look at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Uh, read on. Uh, verse 28. Uh, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've been filled with every kind of wickedness after God gave them over. Evil, greed, and depravity. And then God goes, and then Paul goes on. Did you, what was that phrase? God did what? God did what? God gave them over. Paul teaches the, the concept of a final judgment as God simply giving people over to exactly who they wanted to be all along. According to Paul, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose a path in this life and God seals that path at some point for eternity. God simply allows people to choose for eternity the life that they wanted to live here on earth. If the trajectory of their life demonstrated a desire to know God, to be with God, to explore who he is, to try to figure that out, to try to be in some kind of a relationship with him, then that is what continues after they die. But in this life, if they preferred instead darkness, if they preferred to be far from God, if they pushed him away, then they ultimately will live in that type of environment after they die. 
Paul calls it storing up wrath for yourself. Look at verse 5, chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he's going to give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger, trouble and distress for every human who does evil. Hmm. Apparently, God knows everyone on the planet. Everything about them. And whether or not they ever heard Scripture or whether or not they ever knew about Jesus will be taken into account. Look at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but are those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the scriptures do by nature things required by the scriptures, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Scripture calls this the image of God. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending on them. And this will all culminate, he says, on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. God knows every person on the planet, even their secrets. Therefore, Scripture leads us to conclude that we can trust God to judge people fairly on the judgment. When it comes to heaven and hell, God is going to be fair. He will be more forgiving, more merciful than any of us would be. To some and to others, he will be much more harsh than we would have ever expected him to be. Why? Because he sees everything. In the book of Genesis, a man named Abraham got to know God personally. Abraham was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, he, wasn't, he was raised by idol worshipers. And uh, God started revealing himself to Abraham, and Abraham went all in with God early on. And in chapter 18, Abe is standing uh, with God, uh, so to speak. God is there in his presence, and Abraham is, is looking down on the most sinful city in the planet, uh, Sodom. And God tells Abe that he's going to destroy this entire city because of the evil that takes place in that city. And the conversation that happens after God reveals this to Abraham reveals God's heart regarding judgment. It also reveals the heart of a man who's been hanging out with God. Because Abraham asked God, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That doesn't sound like you. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city, Abraham says. Would you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous citizens of Sodom who are there among all of the evil that's going on? You could not possibly do such a thing, Abraham says to God. 
to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, once again, I remind you that they're looking into a pagan environment, not an environment where the Jewish law has even ever been written. Definitely not an environment where Jesus, has, the gospel of Christ, has ever been preached. And yet Abraham feels he has the right to question God's fairness in even judging those people, that there's a possibility that there are righteous people living among the righteous in that city who, who, who are there preserving that city and deserve not to die. And God responds, Abraham, you've got me figured out. You're absolutely right. I would never treat the righteous and the wicked the same. If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, as you have asked, then I will spare the entire city. And this is where you love Abraham because immediately he starts negotiating. Have you ever had God tell you, tell you yes about something, but he said yes so fast that you thought, well, I, I wait, I didn't ask for enough. So Abraham says, well, what if it's not 50? What if it's 45? This is in the Bible. This is great. What if it's 45? And God says, 45, spare the city. What if it's 40, Abraham said. And now God's got to start to smile because he's like, dude, when I met you, you could have cared less about people like this. And you've really changed. He said, what if there's 35? What if there's 30? And every time Abraham asks, God says, yep, I do. Spare him. Gets all the way down. What if there's 20? God would raise his eyebrow. Just 20 righteous people? All right. What if there's 10? Abraham says. And God says, if I walk through Sodom and I identify 10 righteous individuals in that city, I'll change my mind and I'll spare the whole city. Now, in the end, we know that God didn't find any righteous in Sodom. And he was just and he was fair in destroying this city. But I love how merciful God was willing to be to recheck the details he already knew to be true, to reveal to Abraham what kind of God he really is. Sometimes we forget that it was God who gave us the desire that none should perish because it is God who wants none to perish. If we don't want people to go to hell, can you imagine how much more our God doesn't want people to go to hell? Well, I have to say this conversation between Abraham and God has, has comforted me as I wrestled with the reality of hell that God is not capable of walking through Sodom and, 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 and then destroying someone who didn't des deserve it. That God, that God is very capable of sorting it all out because he knows everyone's secrets and his propensity is not wrath, but mercy. I'm really glad to be serving a God like that. But is hell real? Yes. So let's talk about what do we know about hell? Well, and it might surprise you to hear that for all that we do know about this place, there are many things we really haven't figured out. And there are really good people that don't agree on even the, the very makeup of what hell is. Let me unpack that for you a bit. The Bible seems to contradict itself about hell. And whenever the Bible contradicts itself, you have to hold the contradictions together. You can't say, well, then I'm just going to believe this because it's very clear. It says it clearly right here because if someone can show you very clearly where it says something contradictory, then you have to say, well, I, wow, I, I don't understand. Let me talk to you about some of the contradictions. For example, some verses clearly state that hell is a place of unquenchable 
fire. Have you, have you heard that? I hope you have, because this is hell 101. <laughs> a place of unquenchable fire. I remember as a boy, these evangelists would come through and preach at our churches, and they had these big rollout charts. And, and, and the chart was about the end times. And everybody, this guy was an expert on the end times, you know, and he's read like five books on the end times, and he buys a car and drives around and gets paid to teach people about the end times. And pastors would hire him to come, and they would roll out these charts. But I remember as a kid, all the charts had one thing in common. The doctrine above might have disagreed with the last guy we had. But at the bottom, it was always the same. Guess what was always at the bottom, especially near the end of the chart? Guess. Flames. It was like Super Mario or something. I mean, it was like, always flames. And so that was the one thing they all seemed to agree on, that the Bible was, that, that, that hell was a place of unquenchable fire. But here's the deal. There's an equal amount of scriptures that don't describe hell like that at all. Uh, the other scriptures inc- describe hell as a place of void, a place of incredible darkness and the absence of the presence of anything good. The darkness, like a, like a black hole, the darkness that, 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 that draws everyone towards itself, but when it, you get there, there's nothing there except this intense and tangible darkness that permeates everything. So is it unquenchable fire or is it darkness? It couldn't be both. Well, that leads us to conclude then that it is both or it's the darkness and the fire. That's a metaphor. That's not a literal thing. Maybe it's a metaphor for all that hell represents. Another uh, fairly uh, often debated question uh, considers uh, how, how long will people suffer in hell? And there are scriptures that, that, that seem to lead us to believe that people, once the judgment, then they're, th- they're thrown into hell, and after a bunch of stuff that happens in the book of Revelation, they end up in hell, and then that's it, and then eternally, they are tortured in hell. Now, unfortunately, some of the cartoons have the devils and demons poking them and torturing them, as well as some medieval paintings, uh, when in reality, the devil and demons are in there being uh, there's not, there's not, anyway, uh, don't, let the, don't let that influence, but the torture is real, and it's some, it's eternal. But then there's other scriptures that clearly seem to state that, that, that people are destroyed in hell, and the torture is that they will never be allowed to return to God's presence. And those are two completely different things. Jude described hell as the punishment of eternal fire. But Jesus described it as a place where both body and soul will be destroyed. He said, don't be afraid of those who kill, kill, kill the, the, the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Leading us to believe that hell is a place of destruction for eternity instead of eternal torture. In the Revelation, the Apostle John constantly refers to hell consistently as the second death, as if people die there and aren't tortured for eternity. Here's one of the scriptures. I saw the dead standing before the throne. The book of life was open. Each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So to John, hell is a terrible end, but a second death. 
So is hell a place where people will experience eternal torment or is hell a second death where people will eternally never be able to return to God's presence? I don't know. I do know that either way, that's pretty awful. All right, what else is uncertain about hell? All right, well, some scriptures seem to say that only a few people make it to heaven. Uh, Jesus himself talked about a narrow door, but then Jesus himself takes John into the future heavens where John sees where he says multitudes of people from every nation that are too many to count. What else is uncertain about hell? Well, some would say it's not completely clear how to avoid hell. Some scriptures seem to clearly say that all a person has to do is confess belief in Christ. But then other verses point us to the behaviors after that confession. Some scriptures clearly say that we will judge by what we did, but others equally clear say we will only be judged by what Christ did. Which one is it? Maybe it's both. One thing is very clear in scripture is what Paul affirms, we will all be judged. We will all stand before God's judgment seat, Paul says. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul says the wages of sin, death, the gift of God, eternal life, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says every person will receive exactly what they deserve for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If Paul were here today, he would go out of his way to warn you that hell is something to be avoided, and it can be avoided. Jesus came so that you would not have to go there. Late one night in a conversation with Israel's foremost scholar, Jesus lays it out. God loved the world in this way, Jesus says. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus goes on. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. They don't have to wait for the judgment day because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. God takes no pleasure in condemning anyone. And Jesus seems to be saying that God doesn't condemn people, that people condemn themselves. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life already, not waiting for the judgment day. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of son of God and those who hear will live. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. All right, so let's kind of look at how the world thinks. The way that a lot of the world thinks about the final judgment looks a little bit like this simple diagram, where God gives us time in this life uh, to, to live. And we do some good things, and we do some bad things, and we, do, we, we go along, and then we stand before God at the judgment, and we really don't know, the world would say, what's going to happen at that judgment. And then at God's judgment, some of us are sent to heaven, and some of us are sent to hell. And in most pic people's pictures of this, it's if a person, like a person will say, well, I, ha I, didn't, I haven't killed anyone. 
Uh, that, that one always seems to come up. Well, I have never killed anyone. And you're like, so you're going to heaven because you never killed anyone. That's a pretty low bar, but all right. Uh, and, uh, and then other people will say, well, they're going to hell, but I'm not. And then you kind of try to figure out where the bar is, but the bar is always just a little bit below me. And so most people have everyone going to heaven. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. But God still gets to judge them, but he, he's really a soft God, and he gets to take, he takes everyone to heaven. Then you move to another country, and it reverses. But nevertheless, that's how people view it. Now, the Christian version of this, which I think is the wrong thing, simply just puts the cross in there somewhere. The Christian version of this is you go along, you go along, and then at one point, you pray a prayer, you go to Hume Lake, the speaker does a great job, Thursday night, bam, you're a Christian. And for the rest of your life, you're a Christian. Your mom claims that you're a Christian, even though you live like hell for your whole life, because she has heard of preaching that if all you had to do was pray that prayer right and be baptized, something, or whatever, then you're in and you're fine. And, uh, and so at the judgment then, God's going to send you to heaven. Now, in both of these images, which I think are erroneous, people will, in their mind, have people, first of all, surprised at the judgment, are not completely sure, and then also, as people are being sent off to hell, most uh, people have this image of people uh, saying, no, it's not fair, it's not fair, and crying out to God for mercy, and God's all, no, you know, you deserve it, or, or whatever they have, their Ebenezer Scrooge view of God saying, I judged you, it's too late, uh, and uh, these are your consequences. All right, I think these two uh, images are wrong, and we need to get rid of them, and I think this one would be a better one for us to hold on to. The Bible teaches that according to how we were born with a sin nature, uh, we start heading in a trajectory towards hell pretty much for our life. And then the cross of Christ comes into play in one way or another. And for, for us who have heard the gospel, we say, I believe. I believe that Christ's death was for me. I believe his resurrection is my resurrection. I believe he paid for my sins. And I am going to follow after him, live for him. Holy Spirit, fill me and help me to change my behaviors. And a trajectory changes at that moment. And we enter into what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. And we begin to uh, head for heaven. We don't wait for the judgment day to know that we're headed for heaven. We sleep very well at night. But what we don't sleep well at night about is all of our loved ones who haven't made that same decision at the cross. So our angst is not for ourselves. It's for everyone else that we know. And that's, that's what causes many of us to become missionaries, uh, some of us to become local pastors, or we, we spend our lives because we, or just to be the person in your family that kind of irritates people so much with how much you talk about this, and because your motivation is your love uh, for your family. So what is the saying is that uh, uh, the biblical picture is, that, uh, is more of a trajectory, toward heaven and hell. We're on a path leading to hell, and then we accept Christ's gift, and everything changes. And, 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 and so by the time we face God, it's all settled. It's, not, it, it, it's like a formality, actually. And either our name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, or it hasn't, based on what we believed and how we acted out that faith. Uh, at the judgment, God simply confirms the choices people made on planet Earth. If someone wanted to live right, enjoy God's presence on earth, then that's what they do throughout eternity. If they wanted to reject God, avoid God, be far from God, live in evil ways, then that's how they get to live through eternity. At the judgment, God just ultimately gives you what you already chose. 
So one way to answer the question, why would a loving God send people to hell, would be to ask, why would a reasonable person choose hell? C.S. Lewis said it like this. There are only two types of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God will say, thy will be done. All that are in hell chose hell. So before we go, let's review what we've discussed today. The Bible teaches that heaven and hell are real. And this isn't negotiable for those of us that follow after Christ because we follow after scripture. Hell is, we don't know everything about it, but we know it's a place of torment and soul death and eternal separation from God. Hell exists because the loving character of God cries out for justice. Now, Christians believe in heaven and hell are real because this is what Jesus taught, and we are his followers. Heaven and hell are the end result of a trajectory of our earthly lives. Uh, we will all be judged fairly by a merciful God who is fully aware of what we knew about him in this life. We will all be judged by what we did and didn't do on earth especially in regards to others. We will all be judged with how we by how we responded to Christ's plan for our rescue. <clears throat> and a person can be certain that they will not end up in hell. One thing's for sure, the Bible presents a real hell, a miserable place that should be avoided at all costs. Now, the only way to guarantee your rescue from hell and your place in heaven is to accept Christ's offer of mercy and then allow his Holy Spirit to change how you live in such a way that testifies that you have truly been transformed. I repeat, the only definite way a person could be certain regarding where they will spend eternity is by believing on Christ's work on the cross to atone for their sins by believing in his defeat of death as their defeat of death and by living a redeemed life in a new trajectory towards heaven and away from hell. And that's what I hope for each and every one of you, that you would choose heaven while you still can. What scares me is knowing that everyone who has heard this sermon will be held accountable for what I just talked about and you heard. This concerns me that not one of us later can say, I never heard, I didn't know. Uh, and you know, most of the people listening to me today have heard this many times, and you know Christ's plan well, but some of you keep delaying your commitment to allow him to transform you. For some reason, you are putting that decision off. And I can't imagine why you think that's a good idea. Well, I was working on this last Thursday afternoon and Bryn said, hey, the grandkids are coming over, wrap it up. And I was like, God, this is great. I've been thinking about hell all morning. Now I get to hang out with these little hellions and have some fun. And all oh, we had fun. And we were packing them up late in the afternoon to take them back home. And the four-year-old, Julian, who has a mind of his own, and knows the front door rule. He knows that the grands are not allowed in the front yard without the grandparents because we live on a very busy street. Speed limit's supposed to be, I don't know, 35-ish, 30, I don't know. People go 
way too fast down that street. And they're not going to see a little four-year-old. But Julian wanted to go out into the front so bad that he just waited till we were packing stuff up and not looking, and out he went. And as I came out with my arms loaded, I saw his little backside as he sprinted straight at the, the busy street. It's, it's, it's evening, people are coming home, they want to get home, and there goes Julian. Uh, and, and as I yelled, uh, he turned and looked at me, and with this impish little grin that said, you are too far away to stop me, he turned and he ran up the sidewalk and looked at me, and ran down the sidewalk and looked at me, and then walked back up the driveway toward me. Well, that little run earned him a long lecture from a loving but very stern grandpa. And why, did I, why was I so mean to him? Because I love him. And I saw how his willful rebellion was driving him towards danger. And I felt compelled to warn him again, even if the warning itself made him cry because grandpa was yelling at him. Well, the fear I felt for Julian is the same fear I have for some of you. You have ignored warning after warning, and you turn and you look at God any chance you get and said, look, I'm getting away with it again. And God is there knowing what he knows. I would just say, what you're doing is foolish. Please, accept God's mercy while you can. It's noble of you to be concerned about the people who have never heard the gospel, but that's not who you should be the most concerned about. Sometimes that's a smokescreen because you don't want to think about the fact that you yourself are not living for the Lord and using that as an excuse. Paul says when we stand before God, we will be out of excuses. I would say for now, Trust God about his judgment and all the parts of it that don't seem fair to you. And tell God, I believe you will be fair. And then fall upon the mercy of the court and ask for his grace and his forgiveness and ask him to change the trajectory of your life. Let's leave it there. Oftentimes when I preach a sermon like this, it seems kind of obvious for me to give people an opportunity to, to stand and say, hey, I'm in. That's pretty common around here. And I felt led this weekend to not do that and to let people leave with a sense of, hey, that might even be too easy. I need to allow Jesus to change me on a Monday, on a Tuesday, uh, when I'm living the real life that I really live. And so I'm going to pray that some of you commit your lives to Christ this week when I'm not around to in any way manipulate that. But what we will pray for at the end for, is for those of us that have loved ones who are not serving the Lord and, uh, and, and we don't know if they were to pass uh, tonight. We'd, we just don't know. Would it be heaven or hell? And we're going to close this service by those of us that have people that we love dearly, that we can name by name, either relatives or close friends, coworkers, people that we have grown to care for deeply. 
and, uh, and, and, and we want to call out their name to the Lord Jesus. So if that's you would, you, would you wave a hand so the people around you could see that you are one of those? All right, now let's take our hands and put them, in our, put them out in front of us, and let's, let's just quietly call the names of the people that we're praying for, that they would make a great decision to follow after Christ and begin, change the trajectory of their lives. Father, we come to you now on all the East Bay campuses, and we agree together as one church, united to pray for the lost that are in our midst, for the lost that we are related to, that we work with, that we live near, that we love. Some of these are really good people, but they have yet to commit themselves to you. And some of them, are they're going to be good people, but they're living pretty crazy right now. But no, Lord, we know that you love all of us, and we know that you came for all of us, and you paid that terrible price for all of us. And Lord, we intercede by name the people, and we will not give up until the day that we hear them say, I've decided to follow after Jesus. We pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.